0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I sit down with Howard Lewis, a fascinating man. He's a YouTuber, an art collector, and the founder of Offline, a monthly gathering with a simple aim to bring together a diverse set of people to share a meal together. Now, whilst that might seem like a distant prospect for many of us right now, there's an awful lot to learn from Howard's message about recreating human connection, slowing things down, simplifying our lives, creating space for spontaneity. I beseech you to take a deep dive uh, with Howard in this episode. Without further ado, I give you Howard Lewis. Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Howard Lewis uh, in this wonderful building in Marylebone in London, uh, which I understand is your, your family office, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, I first got to know you through your YouTube channel offline, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, Howard, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Delighted where to already share lunch, part of your life story, talk a little bit about offline, what you're doing, and obviously a few pictures as well.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: I'm very much
0: in your hands. No, uh, it's, a, it's a delight to be here. You, you can't see this, obviously, but we are surrounded by 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 paintings portraits i've had a, a tour of the building here so you're uh, so you're you're somebody with a deep interest in art uh, as well as somebody with well many interests including this idea around the need for us to get offline to connect uh, i suppose more authentically or, or more deeply or something but let's start with offline what What's that about, and how do it start? Well, offline, in
1: very simple terms, is just a celebration of the virtues of randomness and serendipity. And I'm a great believer that actually there's far more that connects us as people than separates us. But the modern world, particularly through social media, would suggest otherwise. People are very quick to reinforce what they do really, really well, but tend to ignore things they're not quite so good at. And I think that creates a sense of separation, which is rather unnatural. Most of us, actually, Richard, were... Pretty useless at most things when we first started. Yes. Very few people are expert on day one. They say, you yes, know, guess what? I played Mendelssohn and it went like a dream. Or I cycled and actually, you know, I broke the record this afternoon. No. People build up expertise in whatever area over a period of time. And that also includes relationships. And I think the problem today is people are very fearful of being wrong or acting inappropriately. And I created it offline really in the first place, as a simple means of gathering people together without a purpose, without a cause, without a reason, just simply the fact that we could share all kinds of random elements in our lives together, whatever they may be, wherever we came from. And actually, the genesis of it was simply if I used to read so widely, and I would cut things out of the newspaper, articles and so on and so forth, so people find interesting. And the feedback was almost universally popular. You know, people will always come back with saying it's oh, wonderful, I really enjoyed that, learning I didn't know before. And eventually, one of my friends, one of the recipients, just said to me, what about everybody else? In other words, I'm getting interesting articles on different subjects, what's everybody else getting? And I thought, that's an interesting idea. Why not bring people together over a supper somewhere, share a few articles and see where it goes? And it was a great success, and I realized two things. First of all, actually... Most people love to share their insight and expertise in whatever area it may be. Secondly, that food's a great leveler when you eat with people, you learn a great deal about them
0: yes that's right and that that struck me as we were talking beforehand and it, it, such a simple insight, which I guess a lot of us know intuitively, but it's we don't eat together a lot as a culture do you I mean I think of my time in the corporate life style and my,
1: the, the norm was to go get a sandwich and eat at your desk. And that's I, I have a friend who, I'll you, separately. And he is a marketer, and he's basically involved in food in particular. And one thing which he and his partner have done is create a format where people working in very large companies all come together to eat great food in an interesting venue, maybe once a week, once a fortnight, and so forth. Just because, as you mentioned before, people in large organizations find it surprisingly difficult to walk across the corridor or walk down two flights of stairs and say, hello. And you need to find a reason to bring this together straightforwardly. People don't do it naturally, as though somehow, if they step out of turn or do something which is not required, there may be some terrible consequence. And therefore, they put their head down, don't tend to get distracted. And therefore, a lot of the conversations, some of which are random, it could be about the football last weekend. It could be about an obituary you read in the newspaper or somebody you knew 25 years ago. And that's all it takes to get the conversation going. And the problem is today, people are very fearful of having the wrong conversation at the wrong time and with the wrong person.
0: Right. And, and I think, yes, there could be some And our default is to not risk it, right? But if we have something that pushes us into a social situation where we are encouraged to share with others, then the magic happens, right? So I think what happens is people forget to be scared. Yes. The biggest inhibitor is the fact
1: that people are terribly worried. I actually share this offline. There are a great many people who I come across, both at offline and in life generally, who spend a great deal of time tiptoeing around the edge of the Baroque swimming pool. And on occasion, accidentally on purpose, I give them a nudge. And they fall in the water. And once they're in the water, nobody says, nobody cares, frankly, whether you fell at the deep end or the shallow end. Nobody cares whether your costume is green or it's red. The only unifying fact is you're wet. Nobody in the pool says to you, Richard, I am more wet than you. You're all wet. And I think the point really is actually there's far more that we share however superficial or deep that level may be the not, and I think this is the big problem. I think just getting past first base is the biggest impediment of all. People are fearful somehow. They're doing something which is either inappropriate or not called for, or it's not qualified, or at some point may be caused to be questioned. And I think there's a great virtue in spontaneity. Just do it. Do it first. Ask questions afterwards. Because so really, as we're doing something which is actually going to be critical. Nothing terrible is going to happen. Okay, somebody may think you've got a terrible sense of humour. Maybe, but you can live with that. Somebody may think, actually, you know, they can't sound your accent very well. Okay, you can live with that too. But these are not reasons enough not to start. What yes. matters most of all really is whether you get the right vibe and there's an encouragement to carry it on.
0: That's what's interesting. Right. But I suppose you could say that people... Uh... People potentially have that issue online as well as offline, don't they? Right. I mean, if I wanted to make some post that seems outside of what my peer group expected of me, I might feel some f- fear there. Equally, to go have lunch with somebody at uh, at the office. Right?
1: But life is a risk, you know. Uh, you know. Do you say actually, I'm not in the tube this morning because I can't guarantee it's to I me at my office at half past eight? No. Hopefully you'll get the hopper eight, might be like 25 to nine. But nevertheless, the fear is that if I cannot control my immediate environment and what may happen thereafter, I'd rather not start. And that, in my view, I think is a danger. Now, you know, there are many factors which want to determine how we behave. Peer group pressure is one of them. The fashion of the moment is another. Whether you have such a number of likes or dislikes or on a particular thread on social media, lots of different things. But I think the problem in a way is that too many people are scared to think for themselves. They're waiting for some approval. They're waiting for someone to validate their opinion. Rather than saying, yes, I, this is what I think, whether it's about, frankly, my flower arranging, whether it's about the way I cook paella, whether it's the fact that I, I forget your name every time I see you, whatever it may be. But the fact of the matter is, people are very, very fearful of what may go wrong rather than what may go right. And that
0: becomes a massive blockage. And, and you think by setting up, is it, is it true that by setting up offline and getting people into this space, uh, you help them? Is this, is this the equivalent of you giving them a nudge into the Zoom pool? Is it getting them over yes, their little bit, initial fear? A little yeah.
1: bit. I've had many people, obviously you'll see when you come, but offline basically embraces a very, very wide universe. I don't really care what people do, where they come from. I don't know their money, their status, or anything like that. My care is what they give and what they share and how open they are. I've had many people come from very senior positions, very successful people, who openly admitted to me, I came and I was terrified. Because I would be running a business with a turnover of 20, 30, 50 million, but I knew my business, I knew my colleagues, my partners, what we'd done before. And one person I remember very well who said, I came and i really was not sure whether i'd be able to make it through the first course because people i didn't know i didn't understand but in a funny way once actually we moved on i forgot to be scared and the drinks went around somebody asked me how i was where i came from my accident I, I remember from years ago there are many triggers which encourage people just to make that first step. But i think of myself first base is the biggest Single problem. When there are two people on it, I do encourage somebody to run to second base or third or fourth. Yes. yes. And some people, once they get going, can't stop. Yes. You say you you know, you, you got a home run here. Yeah, we're we good to get people carrying going, yes. and that's a wonderful thing. But I think for many people, whatever their background, wherever their age, wherever their upbringing, getting past first base, overcoming the fear of being wrong, is the
0: biggest single challenge. You see it right. in companies as well as individuals. No, that's right, and any, and I suppose it makes sense that that form of socialising, eating together, it's a it's a it's a primal form of socialising. It's the one, perhaps, that, that humans know that, and understand the best. So perhaps it makes what, sense. What's
1: interesting about obviously you know, eating together, which you mentioned, is obviously today, certainly in Western culture, we use knife and fork. Once our time which of course we use our hands, and then certain cultures, of course. There are no utensils.
0: Yeah, so now I lived in Tanzania for a while. And well, there, yeah, So that's right. I, I, mean, so a,
1: I went to an Ethiopian restaurant in London a while ago. Of course, they give you this wonderful bread, name which I now forget. And there's all kinds of dips and sauces. I and mean, basically, you all have the same piece of bread. You tear off strips. You dip in and out. You are touching one another. You are engaging. There is a physicality to the process. You don't have it in quite the same way you used to be with a knife and a spoon, for example. But never physically being around the table together. Just sitting And eating, eating without talking, eating without thinking, eating without trusting yourself in some other way, just sometimes watching other people enjoying eating also is a good thing. But you've got to allow yourself time. And one of the problems which we touched upon before is that people are generally in too much of a hurry. I'm not quite sure where they're going half the time, you know. I mentioned before people jogging outside. I don't get that at all. You know, jogging to me. I always see people running in the street are just late. You know, that's why they've got the kit on. They've got a, pair of, a vest, a pair of shorts, you know, have got dressed in time. You know, nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is that communal activity has not to recommend it. Mm. And when you are part of a group, you often forget to be scared. You are looking at visual cues from other people. Some people actually, because they've got a very strong personality, or maybe they've got a loud voice, or maybe because they happen to have a certain serenity or grace about them and it stops you in the tracks you're captivated by a moment a look a thought perhaps but it's about allowing yourself a little bit of time to absorb the moment rather than take the moment move on with it discard it and on to the next one and um, unfortunately the technology we have today does not encourage contemplation for the most part it doesn't encourage you to say guess what you're saying that's a really good idea then come back to you all right tomorrow. Or let me consult with somebody else I know, just get a second opinion, and we'll think about it in due course. It's all about now. If, for example, we talked about before about you know if you were a professional 25, 30 years ago, you write a letter to somebody, take a day or two to get there, personal reads at the other end, compose a response, four or five days for you to both think about what was happening in both directions and what your motivations may have been. Today, your professional. You have responded to an email in four hours? I think you've died or you've you know, lost the plot or something. Yeah, But it, it, the fact is that you are not given, in my view, license to think and take your time and reconsider and reflect, which is very valuable. Now, when you do that as part of a group, it's often easier because you've seen with six or eight people, for example, normally somebody will have a query or a different angle. But the problem in a way is, that and I went this in contact with somebody else the other day, it's really about how you go about uh, your actions, how you are perceived by other people, how you come across to them. And I think one thing which is very, very evident to me in the modern world, particularly in business, is the notion of winning rather than being successful. I think there's a very big difference between the two. I'm not sure what you've experienced this yourself, companies you've mm. advised, and so on. Winning is very adversarial. If I win, you lose. It's binary. Yeah. Success, by its very nature, tends to involve teamwork. You can be successful on your own, you can be a pianist or, or, or a golfer, maybe, but normally, yeah. even there, there is a sense there's a team behind you supporting and cajoling and, and encouraging and so forth. And then, of course, you look at the word win. Look at it in a graphic sense. It's sharp, it's angular, lots of pointy edges. Now let me show you success. It's very soft and wavy and rather voluptuous. You can't think that's like while I'll sit down, I'll sit at the other side of it, I'll do it again tomorrow. It's something you want to do again. And I think again, also listen to the words, you know, if you look in an sense. You know, win, it's sharp, it's to the point. Success, it kind of goes on. I think, have I got too many S's here? Maybe i have that one for over here as well. It's The sensation is very different. And I think too many people, whether in business or in life, are very much more concerned with winning and reinforcing their superiority and trampling you underfoot, the foot, you're on the way as well, than success. Because success normally is about Consensus is about sandwiches more collegiate. And I think it's something you're it with a team of people.
0: Yes <laughs> and, and That metaphor works to me, you know, I win if I get my sandwich and I get back to my and I'm done in ten minutes And I'm, and I'm back I'm back working Yeah, no, not, I, and, 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 yeah. And, and but I have I don't really have a successful sandwich, but I can have a successful meal
1: or yeah, you know, I did it in actually nine minutes yesterday my standards are slipping here. What's going on? I mean, I can't believe I was in the worst possible queue, you know, and the guy didn't remember my order yesterday, you know, how incompetent are these people. The problem, in a way, is that it creates a level of intolerance. And I think on a human level, I think we find much more to share in the areas where we're weak rather than we're strong. Most people, by definition, are not expert in most things. Some people are particularly good at one or two things, which is great, whether you're a great driver or whether you're a great golfer or whether, in fact, you know, you, you simply uh, visited every port around the world. Some people have done things very well for whatever reason, but actually you find that the things which connect us, obviously, are the things we don't do quite so well. You no, know, that was a terrible dive. Well, I, I can't believe you guys, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, legs like wide open like that. You know, or, you know, I can't believe you've got such so terrible shoes on. Say. I mean, not to say said in an unkind way, but it's almost a reminder that we all share Fallibilities which we can all identify with without feeling as if somehow it's a our character, you know. Yeah, Sometimes it's nice to have a very long traffic jam. There is a perverse project it's irritating you, maybe sitting in a traffic jam for whatever reason. But you look in your rear view mirror, you see there are three miles behind you, and you're a little bit smarter than them because, of course, you're a little bit further ahead in the queue. But in the meantime, as you off of the wrong route or not realize there was a the diversion. There's a Pleasure in somehow sharing it with other people too, and I just feel somehow the pursuit of excellence at all costs is very overrated. I think it's about finding points of connection which we can identify with.
0: Yes, yes, and maybe in a in a meal setting, we can over time allow our guard down a bit. We can share these weaknesses and we can connect in a way. Other
1: people reveal them anyway. People reveal them without realizing it, but people overthink and overanalyze and create all kinds of doomsday scenarios. My God, if I come in on the left-hand side, the shadow won't be very favourable, and my hair's too broad. What I mean, my God, people have more things to worry about than that. But nevertheless, yes, I think it's about creating an environment people feel as though they fit. Not that they have to be the subject matter expert, or necessarily be the wisest and cleverest person in the room, but somewhere where they feel they're among people they identify with on whatever level. And that's very important indeed. I just feel, you know, the notion of gathering together has become less and less pronounced with the advent of technology and social media. There are people in large organisations who could very easily meet for a coffee, but choose to send a message via text or WhatsApp, even though you know, they are not in our town. They are maybe one hundred fifty yards away,
0: maybe five, maybe at the other end of the desk, maybe that as well,
1: yeah. maybe that as well. And I think it's it's a it's a problem in society generally yeah. the, People are afraid to stand and say, hang on, no, no, no I, 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 that's wrong. Why, why are we doing it that way? That makes no sense. It may be a brilliant new I know, idea and so, but actually it doesn't make sense for us. The fear of saying something out of turn is very powerful. And therefore, people would rather say nothing than sit the upper card.
0: And you and we were saying earlier that perhaps one of the, the reasons why people are feeling more anxious about saying the wrong thing is because this sense of we're being recorded. You know, our digital lives are out there. And and so people are more wary. Whereas I suppose in an offline setting there isn't perhaps so much of a fear. I
1: think that's right. I think people are generally much more exposed. I think the fact is that wherever you go, you are under surveillance. Now you don't actually know it, but people don't advertise the fact. By the way, so if you're on the tube, this afternoon on the way to Heathrow Airport, there'll be cameras trained on carriages one, three, seven, and five. No, that doesn't happen at all. But one way or another, you can be reasonably sure whether through a drone or a satellite, or somebody else's unobtrusive footage, you are featured. In most cases, it would make no difference to you, whatever. But nevertheless, there is a sense you are unable to live your life incognito should you choose. Everything somewhere is recorded, and that becomes a problem. Now, of course, unless you live on a desert island, or somewhere suitably remote, the fact of the matter is, it's inescapable. The question really is, at what point does it become so intrusive that you start to lose any sense of your own boundaries. And I'm a big believer in setting boundaries, whereby I'm not so interested in being part of social media, but LinkedIn which is fine. Otherwise, I think most of it really is very miss. I think that some things have value. There's no question at all when there have been major incidents. Twitter was a very, very effective means whereby message could be spread very quickly and very powerfully across the world. But the problem you have, in a way, is the reliance upon technology, particularly personal technology, is so overwhelming that people forget what it is that made them human in the first place. And that really is another of the issue. You know, we all communicated perfectly well face-to-face for thousands of years before digital media ever showed up. Perfectly well. And cities were created, and revolutions were won, and inventions were made, and people travelled, whether by plane, or boat, or even on foot for that matter. But somehow, there was a physical dimension to it. And I think, unfortunately, in the modern world, which is obsessed with the idea that progress should be measured largely in terms of speed and efficiency, and I'm not just necessarily right, progress is not always progressive, Sadly, it sounds a bit of a mm. contradiction in terms, but progress isn't always progressive. And the desire to do something quickly, so somewhere is a peddling. I mean, I wasn't aware. Yeah, we've got it done by 4.30 this afternoon. No, no, surely not. I often tell the story of the farmer who 100 years ago wants to get a handle on how to deal with the vicissitudes of the weather and how the season will be changing, would put his hat and coat on, and he would walk to his neighbour for a chat. His neighbour would be five miles away. And of course, along the journey, the farmer would observe the weather conditions. He'd look at the crops, all the animals running out of the hedges and so forth, which way the wind was blowing. Think about maybe what he did last year, where he could do this to try more efficiently. And he finally arrived at his neighbor's house five miles away. They sit in the veranda, no doubt, have a glass of lemonade and talk about the way of the world, problems and opportunities and so forth. And then he walked back five miles. Contemplating what he'd learned from meeting his neighbor, what he'd seen on the journey over, what he might see on the journey back. Now, unfortunately, although I exaggerate the point slightly, there's a lack of thought and reflection in the modern world. People are in too much of a hurry. And I think that many people will be a lot happier if they didn't feel as though somehow they were on the proverbial hamster wheel. Now, I've written a book, I mentioned before, all about the offline philosophy, uh, it's coming at least for the year. And in it, I refer to a particular subject which you will be aware of. And I'm sure everybody else watching this as well. FOMO. Yes. Fear of missing out. I wrote a chapter in my book called LOMO. Love of missing out. Didn't invite me. Oh, thank God for that. I, like, I, I, I can do my thing. I stay in bed a bit longer. I, I can see my girlfriend, take a dog for a walk. How fantastic is that? But the idea that somehow there is a great party going on, there's an event going on, there's a parade, there's a correlation, and you weren't invited, you weren't included. What kind of schmuck are you? And I, over so here, you're saying, very big schmuck over here, you know, I don't want to go, take some mutation, I don't want to see the aftermath, the photographs, I didn't care. But I think I'm in a minority there. And a lot of people do care. And they care in a sense because the fear of not actually being a part of something. The fear of somehow being in seclusion, not because you were happy in your own company. Why? You're a bit of a loser. You've got no friends. If you had friends, you'd be at the coronation, you'd be at the event, you'd be at the game, whatever it may be, you're not. You know, if you said something, you actually had a wonderful day, which I often do, what I do? I read my books. Nobody phoned me. I didn't go anywhere. I had no plan. I read one book, I read another book. and I went out for a bit, I had a shower, came back, read more, whatever it may be. But I did it on my own. And being on your own has much to recommend it, as the farmer may have told you on his walk to and from his neighbor. Yes. When you are on your own, you have time to think. Now, what's interesting to me is on the tube in London, it is fascinating. You were talking before about the chocolate challenge I had filmed on a well, few of them. But the original idea was to do that on the tube. The reason I didn't do it on the tube is first of all because Well you, maybe you
0: should explain to people what the chocolate challenges is.
1: That is also possible. But also they can go look at it themselves, or well, you can tell them yourself. The chocolate challenge basically was where I was filmed in Baker Street, in Maryland High Street, in actually, Pall Mall. And the idea was I I'd was standing in the street with a big box of chocolates, and I would offer a chocolate to anybody who came past me who was not online. In other words, not on their phone. Not with a headset on, not looking at some film, actually engaging with a friend, walking a dog, eating an apple, whatever it may be, just regular, without being obsessed with somehow being up to in every respect. Now, that concept, I like. I like it because actually what it says is that I am my own person. I'm not into what it doing, a fashion. Popular thread and so forth. What was interesting about the particular process, the chocolate challenge, was the fact that most people were very engaged by it. People sort of talk, what is it was about? And I, it was some people my referring the chocolates, particularly small people. And of course, it's great when you saw little kids, now four, they're five, and they're burrowing in there. I, mean, I got orange ones, where's, where's the green one? The green? Play playing more, you huh? go to my friends and so forth. But it was great, it was a crazy interaction. And then the Mars got involved, someday we're robot to come over. That, to me, is a wonderful thing. But nobody worried too much about, it. you know, saying, like, well, I'm standing on the wrong side, therefore, you know, like, I'll put the to come around the back. You feel it that way. People just did it for the pleasure of doing so. And I think that's a very important point. Spontaneity, living in the moment, not worrying about somehow you'll be judged or given a mark out of 10. And the offline chocolate challenge is, I think... Emblematic of it. Now, what's were you were talking about before. I think you forgot what it was. So you were know, we talking,
0: you know, talking about the, the, the chocolate challenge. You were first going to do it on the tube. Oh, yes. Okay, like okay it, well,
1: thank God you were following. Okay. The whole thing about the tube was I was going to do the chocolate challenge on the tube because, of course, there you have very, very big compartments and certain lines are all contiguous. It's, all, it's one long thing. It's all connected rather than individual carriages. And I was going to have it filmed on the tube. The problem was you need to get permission and they charge you. The I was going to go, I will charge you to use the line, even if it's in a quiet part of the day. And at the time, I thought, I, was not, I don't want to do that at all. But nevertheless, the reason that the tube is interesting to me is because, in fact, on the tube, if you look, certainly in a relatively busy compartment, you will find almost everybody is engaged on some mobile device. Yeah. The number of people who are actually reading a newspaper, God forbid, a book, talking to their friends, maybe just thinking, maybe they're reciting poetry, all I know, it doesn't matter. Compare number of people actually on a device, I'd be generous to say 20% of the yes. And that is very alarming. Why is it such a major impediment? People say, like, uh, hello, good morning. Or hello, goodbye. <laughs> What's wrong with that? But it, it, it's interesting. The one thing which emerged with the chocolate challenge was that there was the odd person who did feel something slightly sinister going on. Is yeah. there some kind of plot here? What's am in I, these chocolates? Yes, am I, yeah, I going to be, am going to be named and numbered here? You know, I mean, is there going to be some negative consequence? Now, on the tube, there are certain people who you talk to and they turn around as though somehow they're astonished that you are addressing them rather than somebody over their shoulder. As if the idea of just regular communication was something which was complete anathema to them. You know, talk to people? What kind of crazy idea is that? You know? I mean, and yet, you've a hang on a second, no. Most places, it was a simple courtesy to say, good morning. You have to tip your hat. i on what not one to wear anyway, but you know what i You have to go to the extreme, but say hello, good morning, or, you know, in a very innocuous way. Some people do respond very well. Yes. Now, the only thing I was going to say very quickly, which is, is relevant to this in a slightly different context, I was talking about before, there is one incredibly powerful emotional tool we have at our disposal as human beings, which is all too infrequently used in my experience. And that's, of course, and we're about to exhibit it right now, smiling. Smiling, Richard, is an incredibly powerful tool in terms of what it says about you, the feelings of warmth it induces in your counterparts, and the fact that somehow once you smile... You are saying to somebody, I'm leaning into the conversation, I'm interested in you as a person. That's all. I've no idea what we're talking about next, but I'm interested, I'm leaning in, I want to feel as though somehow there's a connection and there's an embrace. So it is. Now it's not like I want to embrace everybody on the chief, obviously not. I am not big enough arms, but you understand the point. Yes. Why is it somehow people view that as if is it because it's a public space and because they have become very, very much governed by the the potential threat or some lunatic, whether with, with, with a knife or, or something, who's uh, maybe sneeze all over you and give you coronavirus. Well, yes, life is a risk. Like I said before, you know, if you only take a role on if you can provide absolute guarantees, the truth of the matter is that's not realistic. Life doesn't work that way, wherever you live, frankly. Nothing is certain at all. Yes. But I feel in some ways a lack of certainty is a good thing. Is when you are not so certain about either your surroundings or people you're with, you pay more attention. And I have found that unfortunately, when people are in a comfort zone of familiarity, they don't pay much attention, they go through the motions. When you are taken out of your comfort zone, maybe a different place, a different language, people look a bit strange, people need you can't pronounce properly you just pay more attention i don't think in the modern world you pay enough attention whether in business or in a personal context
0: yes well i suppose we we are somehow losing our ability to to maintain attention on a thing partly perhaps because of our because of our online worlds because we have this constant simulation, and mm-hmm. as soon as we start to feel b- bored we can click onto the next profile or the next news feed or yeah, we can keep scrolling so so we perhaps we're losing an ability to to keep our attention on one thing. Like you say, read a book, right? I've got to sit down, I'm no good at distractions. I've only got the, the book to entertain me, so I...
1: But I don't think you need to have a, what I would call a, a defined plan. It's not as if I'm gonna I'm, I'm I'm read the book, yes. and I'm gonna read 10 chapters, and I'm gonna write a report on it. No wants you to do that. Just read, read apparently a book of photographs, like well, a book of essays. it can be short, it can be poetry. It's my way it is. It's just the fact that it does require a certain effort. And most people don't want to make Most people are very inherently lazy. Another issue you've got to deal with, both in corporate life and professionally, not to say they're bad people, not to say they haven't got ability, but they're inherently lazy. And I think that it's difficult somehow to raise your game, do things differently. One issue is, really, I'm sure you've come across in your corporate world, you know how young people supplant old people. And young people come with fresh ideas, energy, vigor, You know, maybe a little bit, should we say, avant-garde in their thinking, which is good, in my view. But where you are putting that person in front of another who is maybe 25 years older, far more senior in terms of age, remuneration, experience, and so forth, and actually you find the young individual is twice as smart. That's suppose problem. Not for the young individual, the older, experienced, mature person who is, you know, I'd say more comfortable being listened to, acknowledged, respected, which are justified, but not for their own sake alone. You've got to continue with I always say people, you know, tell people running big businesses. When you're running a big company. The most important thing you can do as a CEO, anything. get the operating business. Groom your successor. Grooming your successor, you will build on your legacy, the right skills for the modern age. Hugely important. Because of course, the nature of business, the nature of communication, the nature of integration is going to change hugely, even in five years. And have you got the right person? Actually, I, I, I don't think, in fact, that... It's necessarily about people who got the right blend of operational skills. I think that in a way it can be done by people remotely. It's about the kind of leadership you provide. Now, it's interesting. I was approached a little while ago by my old school. My old school, good school. Um, and they were going through a process whereby uh, they were choosing a new high master, head master, so. And... They approached the alumni network to say, you thought you got any ideas? And I came back to two things. Number one, um, I don't personally think you should be looking for somebody who is a scholar par excellence. Great if you can get one. But what matters most of all is you look ahead 20 years into the future. And what will be really, really important, I think, is not actually your intellectual capacity, though that has its place, It'll be the ability to empathize and engage with people in a world dominated by technology. And you need somebody coming in as the headmaster who reflects those sensibilities. It'd be great, no doubt, if somebody could recite Latin verse backwards or, or, or find some incredibly complicated algorithm and then it a prize. No question at all. And I applaud that. But what's even more important is the ability to actually engage and to communicate in a world which is dominated by the digital mind. I said, on top of that, going to say further, the breadth of the school, in terms of its profile, its history, its network, the world at large, I think it's too big, in fact, for a very highly qualified academic. I said, what you really, need, in my view, you're a CEO. You're a CEO to run the whole thing, and you bring an outstanding team of teachers, whatever level, to come in, in different disciplines. They thanked me very much for my observations. I'm not sure they actually acted upon them because, in fact, in the end, I discovered in fact that the, um, the new headmaster was, was a woman mistress, um, and I have no idea where she on the role of CEO. But I don't think she has. But it's interesting to me because I think that the big question is whether certain management are fit for purpose in the modern age in terms of the demands of business and demands of consumers, people they serve. I'm not sure they
0: always are. So you think this is about. You think that the ability to empathise and engage is going to be much more important? Yes. And I suppose that's why you're saying, in that case, that a CEO with those skills of being able to build a team, grow a team, uh, is, is potentially more important than the technical excellence of the, of the teacher yes. in that case. Yes. Right.
1: Yes. I think that you know the CEO is not there to demonstrate his or her operational excellence. That's what you've got teachers for. Yes. It's like saying, you know, I mean, it's like a football manager. Mm. You want a football manager who actually is not only a great tactician, also a great man-manager, also knows which combination players to play in a certain game. Yes. not to play the game itself, but choosing the right players in terms of their profile, their background, their form, other factors, hugely important. And I think actually in business, I mean, you may have your own view, maybe people may have got to screw me. I'm sure they will actually at some point. But the fact of the matter is I think that that element will become more and more critical in businesses and large relations, and even smaller, as the years go by.
0: And what the, so that's a fascinating paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, as, as our world digitises, um, there will be more and more of a premium, and we automate more and more of, of I suppose, uh, our lives uh, in terms of what valuable set of skills is going to be this ability to relate to other human beings. And yet that very technology is uh, intruding on our ability to develop those skills.
1: Yeah, you see, the irony is that the, 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 the greatest technology of all is actually the technology of thought and technology of speech. You see, the brain is the greatest piece of technology ever invented. The brain supersedes everything you can possibly think of. I'm sure there are men in white coats in a lab somewhere saying, no, they've got it all wrong. You know, this will be the deal breaker to end all deal breaker. But no. The greatest piece of technology, in my view, is the brain, and the brain has given us two very great gifts, the ability to speak as humans, which is not something which you see in animals, albeit they've got their own version of it, and the ability to listen, you share with animals, but of course, listening and then interpreting what you listen, and actually one two different things. But I think to myself that yes, the technology is great, no question at all, extraordinary advances made in selective areas. I mentioned before, you know, medical technology, incredible. Last 25 years, what's been achieved? Flight booking systems, but you just tap in where you want to go, and just up it comes, and you're, you're ready to get Wonderful. But I think that on a practical basis, what matters most of all is the ability to engage. And I think although technology does have its merits, it is really, in a personal context, designed to be an adjunct Not a replacement for what's gone before. And I think the ability to think for yourself, even say, guess what? I want to think about it. I'll come back to you. I'll treat somebody else. Is a suggestion somehow that you're not quite up with events. And I always say, yes, I'm absolutely up with events, but I want to actually sample them slowly. I don't feel as though somehow I'm in competition, whereby I've got to give the definitive answer in 45 minutes. Yeah. Maybe I'll see from it. Maybe I'll think about it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a little bit off the end, add a bit more over there, do something differently next month. But I think that the brain is the gracious piece of technology we as humans can ever hope to utilise. And yet somehow it's almost regarded as just there. just There, you know, for the ride. Yeah, like your feet. Your feet, you, know, you come to the body, okay, you got things on the end to help you walk because Yeah, but yeah, you know, brain, yeah, what's it let us do? Well, okay, fine. Yeah, notion it you think or hold yourself up upright or, or, or hold the right and before. Yes, obviously. There are many assets of the brain, I'm not remotely expert in these things, but I just know it is an incredibly complex organ and it has an ability to change lives in a way that technology is not able in quite the same way. See, technology is really an enabler. But it still requires human input to be affected. And I just feel somehow that people get things wrong the way around. So somehow, technology comes first. Technology is the answer to everything. It's not the answer to everything. Sometimes there is no answer to everything. Whether it's kind of technology or your own brain, there is no answer. There's no obvious answer at this minute. And I just feel somehow the idea that you know you can't achieve. I said before, you know, the fact you could sit down and play Mendelssohn, or the fact you're saying you say are saying, I'm going to race you. Would we'll you at the end of the course, the place, at the end of the road here? You're saying, "By the time I got there, yeah, I've broken the world record." And of course you won't. You might be faster than you think, but you will not break any world record. But never, it's, 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 there's a competitive spirit with everybody, but for a lot of people, it's very much suppressed. Only rises when encouraged within certain conditions. Other people are pressed about everything. As you said before, you know, get my sandwich in 10 minutes back to my office. 10 minutes my god, yes, I, I can beat that. I can get the cue on the end where that guy's a more efficient. Yes, I, and I can prove to the people down the court, you know, yeah, like, crazy. But there are people who like that, sadly. Yes. I think on yourself, why? Why are they like that? Why do you behave in that way? What is it you're trying to achieve? Or is your life so bankrupt in other respects that you actually attach undue
0: importance to that? Maybe. Right. Well, that's a, well, that 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 could be an analysis of, of of many companies that have gone, maybe, maybe you know, that have gone under because they've obsessed on on these particular factors. Maybe it's efficiency, of, and maybe it's uh, top line. You know, they've they've lost they've lost sight of really what's binding a company together and what it's purpose for. I think one problem you have,
1: of course, is in, when, you were in the, when you are publicly quoted particularly, so a, a problem in America where they they're reporting quarterly as well. Here, less so, but again, there are different levels of scrutiny. But there are a lot of companies I think are much better if they were private, where they could actually look long-term, where they didn't have shareholders to answer to, and where the banks I suppose will take a slightly more favourable view because they're not going to be influenced by what the Anders says for this quarter or the next. But I think again you see there are people who go public for the wrong reasons. I think there's a cue to of having a public company. Be able to, you know, issue shares or buy businesses they bought. Not the worst idea in the world, but you have to question to what other benefit may lie there and is it actually appropriate? You can raise money privately. I mean, it's not as straightforward, but it's not difficult. You, do, how you ask but I just feel in the public arena there are too many businesses who are too exposed because they are looking to perform under the radar of a select group of people who are often very unforgiving and I think that's another thing which I come back to the world generally is an unforgiving place one thing I is, uh, you might have seen actually one of the, um, the chocolate challenges I did on, on the offline videos I got chatting to one of the biggest U vendors on Maribor High Street. Whenever I see somebody selling a
0: biggest issue... And for people internationally, that's the, the, oh, the, the publication yes. that homeless people sell in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's, great, it's, it's, yeah. it's a way of getting them on their yeah. feet yeah.
1: and making a little income, it certain, certain, certain people. people all kinds of reasons to be on the street. Sometimes, their own fault, sometimes a bit unlucky. Circumstances often dictate that. The number of people I see walk past the vendor as if he or she didn't exist. Not an acknowledgement not a hello, not a raised eyebrow, not I'll buy one tomorrow, nothing. And I find that quite shocking. It's a very thing, but they just say to me that there's a fundamental lack of humanity. Is it somehow that they are threatened by these people? Is it the fact that somehow they feel they're unclean, or somehow they deserve to be where they are? I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm. 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 I'm not making any statement on that. But it is quite shocking to see people walk past as though somehow they had a uncharmed an view, and this person was not part of the picture. And it's actually very, very shocking that people complain about. Now, I'm not saying it's so bad here. in about other countries. Probably every country has good or bad in that regard. I don't think that the British are any more or less kind than any other nation. It's funny how people often have a stereotype. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, a in context, who's Irish, he said, no, you've got to understand, the Irish do family like no one else in the world. I so, really? What? You mean more than the Italians? I mean, give me a break. You know, every you go everywhere. With the Americans, or the Argentinians, maybe not the Japanese, but you know, most nations, they are warm and they're open and they're hospitable, they want to be with you or they want to share. Please don't tell me that the Irish have got some kind of special formula which makes them a bit different. No, they don't. They don't at all. And I think, again, because i said before, there's far more that connects us and separates us. Most people, Richard, wherever they go, are warmly greeted. If you're a stranger, somewhere out of town, most people want to do the right thing. Buy their own neighbourhood, their own circle, their own country, their own flag, their own whatever. And I think, you know, again, there is a great virtue in finding those points of convergence rather than divergence. You know, as I said before, I'm very happy to go to a cafe like the Packard of the Inn with a communal table, mm-hmm. where I sit down and I make a point to somebody who is on their own or maybe part of a group, and if appropriate, start chatting. Now, if somebody is not welcome, which was I go away, which is fine, but somebody is very welcome, and people reveal all kinds of things about themselves.
0: Yeah. But this, this links back to what you're saying. To find this convergence, it's often easier to find it in, in our weaknesses. And, and that's what we don't expose online. Like we're much, we, we, we tend to curate our online presence in a way that we, we don't when we build built trust with somebody one-to-one. And
1: Yes, except on the toxic challenge, of course, people were showing their weaknesses, as was I. You know, so in a way, I was reflecting people, they did not do something as well as they might have done. They did not actually embrace the world beyond they were in their own world, which is why they're looking at a screen or on on, on a headset and so forth. I I think you see weakness is a good thing. Weakness actually invites us to look at ourselves in a rather more balanced way. Yeah, I think the pursuit of excellence is, as ever before, very overrated. I mean, okay, great, you've made $400 trillion last year, but I mean, you know, and? And I can remember very well, somebody came to an offline dinner a few years ago, didn't know him very well, he was actually the husband of somebody else. And he was a successful guy, clearly in the financial markets. And somebody asked him, well, you know, what's your background, where are you from? He basically, in one very long sentence, where I'm not even sure he drew breath, provided his life story... So how he got to where he was, how brilliant he was, how much money he made, and And at the very end of that, I said to him, "And now tell me something interesting about you." But <laughs> <Well>, that wasn't <laughs> remotely interesting. You know? So, you know, you're giving me a lot of achievements. Okay, well done, fine. You earn some money, you're very clever. All right now, let's kind of get, get, get the kind of guts of it. Well, you no, know, tell me anything you're bad at. That's much more interesting, you know. Tell me about that terrible faux pas you committed when you went back to your old school, you know. Or, you know, you farted at some terrible... Yeah, that's all you want to hear about. That's what makes life interesting. Hearing it as something, you won the award, what, the seventh year in the round? Oh, God, not you again. Yeah? I I I'm I, You're probably more polite than me.
0: I probably am, yeah. yeah, yeah. you probably
1: are. So I don't mind terribly much about, you know, uh, putting my hand and say oh, uh, who are you? What are you know, I thought she was dead. Yeah, but the truth is, that people are very, very worried about the fact that there may be some terrible consequence. You can always, always, Jerry smooth over a misunderstanding or a sharp word. But the problem you have is that most of these gatherings we're talking about, people are engaged in a very bland conversation. It's not confrontational, it's not actually uh, in any way designed to somehow energize people. It's about not making mistakes. I, mean, I like make mistakes, not bad, but not big mistakes. I don't want to make it's yes, oh my God, yes, I, 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 I've sort of run somebody over. That's a very big mistake, yeah. But yeah, where I said something out of turn, or I misunderstood what they were saying. But you can use it as a device to draw people out. And that's also a good thing. I just feel somehow that it's a reminder of our fundamental humanity. I think, you know, people do what is. tell you a quite funny story, which I'll relate at the offline dinner you're coming to. Um, a true story. I hosted a dinner on behalf of a big technology company called Salesforce. Yeah. And they wanted to get close to their clientele without selling anything. And so I'll tell you what. I'm invite 20 old people on my side, random bunch of people I know, myself, Kieran, fellow over the wherever it may be. And you might have people on your side. Clients, senior management. I'll miss them. All. I'll create the whole thing for you. Anyway. It went very well. One of their clients I became very friendly with. And he was in fact at the time the marketing director of The Economist you know, magazine. I was the little client of Salesforce and he said, look, they they, 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 they dropped me a line. They advised me as their guest and I, I was free that evening as it happens. And he said, I pitched up. He said, I really had no idea what the hell was going on. I so they invited me and I got the address and I went. He said, sat down at my table, there were always round tables, people move around so forth. He said, You've got to understand, when I go to events typically, they are populated by the great and the good. And there are workshops and there are seminars and everything is organized and there are biographies and are agendas. He said, frankly, everything is prepped to within an inch of its life. He said, interesting, maybe on an intellectual level, but it's actually a bit dull after a while. He said, I pitched up at the old fine dinner, sat down. I found a fellow to my left. He was running a hedge fund. lady on my right, she was a piano teacher. For fellow opposite me, on the side of the table. He was running a dog-walking business. He said, nobody cared why, I did The Economist. And he said, it was the most wonderfully liberating moment. Nobody cared about my status, my position, my money, I made. He said... I, as in I, the individual, not I, the marketing executive, was immeasurably more interesting. And whether it was like, well, I got on a holiday last time, or whether I had a particular you know, addiction to, I don't know, lobster, it doesn't matter what it was. And in a way, it was very revealing to me that somebody who came from a very senior role was quite so openly admitting that, in fact, the very formulaic approach of most business-related events. And I dare say professional events. You may say, for example, it could be a bunch of doctors or witnesses getting together, but where there was a false formality. And I don't really care about that kind of thing. I'm prepared to take a chance, and I'm prepared to take a risk in terms of maybe who sits where. You have no connection with one another, whatever. And that's good as well. And I want people to be a little bit uncomfortable not unpleasantly so, but just to be a little bit more sensitive to surroundings, listen a bit more carefully. And I think that, in a way, for me, is the very key ingredient behind the success of offline. It's just the fact that, as I said to you before, I give people permission to be vulnerable. And once they realize, actually, other people are useless in their own way as well, suddenly all bets are off, people relax. That very much is the key.
0: Yes. And what you're saying there, and in fact what this marketing director has said of perhaps some of his uh, more more large scale gatherings that he attended, I think is true. It's pervasively across businesses now. You know, just just a standard meeting, I think, it tends to be overly format, you know, overly overly form, formalized prepped within an inch of its light often um, before people show up. And you squeeze and, all the soul out of it. Yeah, and it's all quite stiff. Even the chairs are quite, you know, quite stiff sometimes. And you're, and you're sat uh, in a way that doesn't feel comfortable. And, and, and to your point about not feeling some apprehension to, to have you pay attention, I think that's also true because you know he's going to show up you know what the agenda is. You've done it before. You don't. You, you've kind of got into a pattern around this type of meeting. There is no spontaneity. There is no serendipity, and, and I think that's why. And we're starting to see that shift in in business culture where people are getting much more intentional about facilitating workshops in a particular way, where we do spark interest and we do mix things up and we do keep people moving around. But I think, in large part, right now, business ceremony is very formalistic.
1: The if, for if you said to one of your clients, "Guess what? You we're having a meeting." Uh, but not in the office. Maybe work for the weather a bit better. We're going to meet in the park. In fact, we're going have a picnic in the park. Right, OK. I'm eating the wine. You sort the food out here. we the rug and so forth. And when we all get there, we'll find a big oak tree. Eventually, see, first of all, how people sit down. Who waits for the CEO to sit down first? How gracefully he does it or not? You know? <laughs> Who insists on being on their phone and being out of it because they're so self-important they can't be able to help and so forth? Who helps bring the rug out? Who's got an extra umbrella case or a parasol maybe because the weather's very warm? You learn about people. Again, it requires you anything very radical or or, or 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 unusual except that you change the setting. You know, a dozen people, you know, a management team, whatever it may be, maybe a couple of younger people, you know, because of course you want them to feel as though they are also value, they are the future. And actually their voices are arguably more important than that of senior management. You don't senior management think we stuck with the five bazillion times already. Younger people? Absolutely. But when you're in that kind of environment, Richard, I think very instructive, maybe you do it summer someone tell me how it goes, with client A or B, a dozen people, whether it's in London or somewhere else, but in a park and you sit, you talk, you don't think about business at all. This is, in a way, is the least important thing. It's about the gathering of people, and whilst you're there, talk about food. you will like it. Eh? Talk about, you know, what else you enjoy outside, whether it is, frankly, cycling, or whether it is taking the dog for a walk, or whether it's climbing mountains. It's another great deal. I don't care, but I think you will find that people will become much more, I think, accepting of the frailties of others when they are viewed in that environment. You see, when you are sitting around a boardroom, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, years ago, I was involved with a company. I was, I was, I was the chairman, in fact, for, for, for some time. And they were going through quite a fast expansion, and the caliber of people rose commensurately. And I was asked, as part of, the, sort of the, 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 the process, to try and provide a second or third opinion on people who made it to a certain stage and i would very often not meet them in the boardroom at all because so in the boardroom there is a kind of protocol there's an order of play as a perceived etiquette and in a way it's always scripted and i didn't want that so i would say to certain people meet me at restaurant x now she's no longer with us sadly because they closed down but good restaurant but restaurant you couldn't book. And moreover, you had to share a table, perhaps. I was always fascinated to see, who said please and thank you to the waitress? Who said to the neighbour, who obviously didn't know before, please pass the salt, run the laundry the table for it? Who had dirty fingernails? With food down their front? Or who actually, interestingly enough, them, in one in case, I remember, who had a voice which somehow careered over the hubbub of the restaurant? Very posing, very powerful voice, in a different way. Accidentally on purpose, again, I might say to your friend, by the way, I'll at restaurant X around half past two. If you're nearby, just swing by for a coffee or a glass of wine or whatever. I always get your quick impression of this individual. And more to the point, I want to see how they respond to you as a sudden interloper from a private conversation. And believe me, it's very revealing. I learned a great deal about people there and then. Because actually, in the end, your, your professional credentials are important, but not that important. Your personal skills, ability to engage, ability to adapt, ability to empathize, hugely important. And they'll become more so as time passes. And I think, you know, again, we're talking about, say, my experiences are in the West. Whether one's having the same conversation, for example, right now in China or in the Congo or in Brazil, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I suspect they are to a degree, but I think there are always going to be differences which are a consequence of culture, background, history, climate, whatever it may be. But I can never see that in the world going forward, there will be more convergence. But the convergence will be based upon... I think a set of values rather than necessarily pure professional competence. You'll find companies will attract people of a certain caliber. and I think people of a certain caliber don't have to be necessarily the greatest expert in their field, but by definition, as what we said before, when you don't know or you're not sure, you ask questions. And other words, they will attract people who are humble, who are curious. People don't accept the status quo just because it's been there for four million years. And I think that's very, very valuable. And I think in the modern age, you're going to see much, much more. Of it. I think, in a way, you see it in a different way through activism. People become much more engaged, much more vocal. And I think science has a very good effect. Partly because of the technology, which is a very good reason for technology, in a way. The problem I have with technology is the force of people become partly reliant upon it. So somehow, you know, I, mean, I remember something like a young guy Twenty-three, twenty-four. It's he's a wonderful evening. That's the most amazing thing of all, I must get through the evening for three hours looking at my phone once. I mean, wow, yes, I, that's a celebration. Yes. I mean, yes. It, in a way, it, I was AP, it was, it was quite sad.
0: Yes. But I can relate to that because I, I, I certainly have got a level of addiction to my, my phone, and so it, sometimes it does feel like an achievement to have, to you, have do, of, 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 of put that addiction to side. But do
1: you bridge. actually, I mean, when you're addicted, I mean, is it with you all the time?
0: Is it with me most of the time? And I always think it's an achievement when I manage to put it in the drawer when I'm at home and, and stay off it for 24 hours. There's definitely a, a level of addiction. Do you and, reward yourself? Uh, it's probably not as much. I mean, I, say, I might say to myself, oh, well done, but no. Not, uh, do your kids reward you? <laughs> well, they're not young. They're, they're too young to understand, but it's... I can certainly relate to that guy celebrating he got through three hours, yes. It's interesting,
1: isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean now, what, what, what is your attitude towards... Your, your kids are very small, but what's your attitude towards their embrace of technology?
0: Well, I want to be very careful with it, and um, and I think... I think what's interesting to me is it's creating the environment where these skills get developed almost automatically, right? Because when I think about empathy skills, listening skills, and some of the conversational skills, my mind tends to think about, okay, well, this is something we need to train people in, right? This is the training courses, and companies need to have this as part of their programs, right? Mm-hmm. But really what you're talking about is you put them in an environment, they'll develop these skills, right? If they sit down for lunch every day... On a table where they don't know the same people every day, they're gonna learn conversational skills. They're gonna they're going hear stories, they're gonna to learn to empathize. So it's as it's as much about skills to acquire as it is about a culture to develop. And
1: I think all right. I think it's, it's interesting. I, I think you know that, that there are many examples I can look at. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time looking at young people, maybe as a group, maybe at the bus stop, whatever it may be, and it's also the technology is a crutch. You know, as if they didn't have it, they somehow fall over. They don't have it, yeah. somehow they have no means of communicating with the outside world. Yes. It's what like I said before about the brain through the mode of speech and hearing providing the greatest gift of all
0: yes and, and and of course, whilst it's an immense informational resource you know unseen in history, right this ability to tap into the internet, it's also potentially a a factor that has us lose our ability to use the greatest organ of of all the brain, as you say, because if we, we we're constantly wired in to this dopamine hit of the of the social channels then we're, we're losing. How was our dopamine
1: effect um, activated
0: before mobile Friends came along? Well, I suppose, yes, that's a very good question. And it probably was like acquiring the attention of our friends by telling a good story or empathising with somebody and, and being rewarded in some way. So we would have got dopamine, and I mean those circuits existed to encourage pro social. Is is, is, uh, dopamine
1: a twenty first century phenomenon? It it didn't exist before nineteen ninety-nine. I mean, you know, I mean I don't know. I don't know. But it's it's interesting how it has such a transformative effect it would seem. You know. What is it about dopamine rather than anything else which actually has such a pronounced effect?
0: Well, yes, and I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm using that as a shorthand for whatever that addictive mechanism is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It it, it, certainly exists. It
1: it, 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 is interesting. You know, if if suddenly, and it may happen yet, let's just say there is a massive global outage whereby it goes down. I mean, it's just gone. I mean, you you can do what you like. You can back up and say, well, it's gone. What are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean now, I, I'll be fine. And you'll probably be fine as well. But I'm looking at the general population. What happens next? Yeah, you know, where do I go? I can't look up my maps. I can't look at a clock. Because of course, you know, now i has got to watch anymore because of course there's a clock on the left. I've layer. got no
0: idea how to ask directions.
1: That's right. And it's, 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 it's interesting if you think about it. Okay. And it may happen. I mean, I don't think It was all very well talking about, you know, Coronavirus is frankly a a a, 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 a pipsqueak problem. I mean it, okay, it's serious. It's essentially a strain of flu, it's just very contagious. If for example somebody said, Guess what, you know something? We've actually um we've hijacked the grid. There's no trusty anymore. <laughs> I mean it's just gone. What are we gonna do? Yeah, so not only can you not refrigerate anything, nor are the trains functioning, nor for that matter have you got any connectivity. Then what? You mean I've got to talk to him? Ask him for, oh my, no, I, I, I can't do that. Well, you can, of course you can do that. But I think to myself, you know, is it going to take something of a cataclysmic issue? I hope not. I like to think, actually, that most people, when put on the spot, they say, yes, I'm, yeah, you're right. I was a bit lazy, I was a bit weak, I followed everybody else, seemed like a good idea at the time, all the usual reasons, most of which I can identify with. I think I've, I've probably been lazy and weak, and so I've it myself many times. We all have. But I think that the problem today is the technology is always seen as some kind of a solution. Whatever imperfections I may have, what I'm not very good at, what I can be better at, I say, well, the technology will somehow save my life. There will be some device, there will be some app, which somehow will give me a route to the golden path I must follow. And I don't think it really exists in quite that way. There is a golden path, but it is not exclusively digital. And I think actually digital is only going to work well when you have people with the right level of empathy to guide us along the right lines.
0: Yes. Yes. The future will not be digitised.
1: Okay, I think it will be to a degree. I mean, I'm, I, I I'm probably the most. Non technical person, you'll ever interview. So, in a way, I, 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 I come at it slightly from the point of view of maybe what you might call the idiot savant, you know, where I'm so far removed from it that actually it almost gives me license to ask incredibly stupid questions, it's like looking at art. People say, is that the right, right, right way up? Yeah, of course, it's the right way up. Yeah, but you ask questions, it's probably a reasonable because you're not asking if you're unfamiliar. But I think it's also important not to feel intimidated to such a point where actually you feel it wasn 't that famous case about the Korean airliner do you remember this maybe not Korean airliner is basically um, going but flying somewhere there was a problem clearly a problem with the controls with the, with, the, with some uh, some some device there and because of the uh, nature of South Korea society and the um, very deep acknowledgement of hierarchy and so forth. The number two, number three officer, wherever it was, the navigator, did not feel he could tell the lead pilot we've got a problem with the altitude or whatever it may be because he felt it was not appropriate and he would therefore lose some sense of personal honour or he would be insulting maybe the status of the pilot and his peers and so forth, what happened? He is saying they will crash and everybody died. Now, what kind of crazy thinking could induce any white-minded person acting in that way? Except for the fact that uh, 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 an extreme desire to obey authority. Although not necessarily one does that routinely in businesses, nevertheless, the fear of challenging the status quo. I think it's actually a very big negative, and it reflects very yeah. badly on management of some very senior uh, individuals in, in, in large organizations.
0: Well, yeah, and there's a lot of research. In fact, we had Amy Edmondson on from Harvard on the show, and she's, she's done a lot of the pioneering research on psychological safety, and it, precisely what you're talking about that that phenomenon of people fearing speaking up. Uh, and she cites nurses in surgical. Settings and and people on production lines, and, and she's done. You know, looked. Into, but this is a an issue that's prevalent across across easy. society. But also, if you can create psychi- psychological safety and you can create environments where people feel free to speak up, then you get better results. You get higher productivity, creativity, and so on.
1: Yes, but I think you, the problem in a way is we said before about safety in numbers. You know, the, the, you know, you can have an individual conversation, and people respond in an individual way. But you need some kind of momentum behind you. You need to create a movement in a way. And to do that collectively is very hard. Bearing in mind history, culture, language, all the usual things. Um, uh, but one does have a sense that there should be some kind of international standard. There should be an international standard in terms of the way you behave, where you treat people, where you acknowledge them and so forth. No, okay, some people may bow a bit lower than me. I, didn't very low. I can't fall away that far. But yeah, you know, some people are. I think what's I was saying, you know, you, sort frustrate of, yourself on the ground. I mean, yeah, it, it's enough. You, you, you sign up again. There's a halfway house. But I think that somehow there needs to be a shift in the way people perceive themselves and perceive the role of authority. What's authority there to do, actually? They would give direction, really, a framework. It still there to be challenged. as not as there's somebody around there. know it's there and we untouched for the next 5,000 years. Really? Mm-hmm. According to whom exactly? Is there some? Like, well, some individual, some director has emerged and this is where we do things. Some people vote the same way. Like, I, 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 we've always been Labour. Labour's in 1942. Oh my God, yes, well, we are now 80 years old. You know, things are changing. No, no, no. It's extraordinary. People have a fixation in a way. And the fear of deviating from what they know and what is familiar and what may cause some kind of opprobrium for their peer group is overwhelming.
0: Yeah, well, and we train it in from from very young age, right? And I know that from my own children, right? But, yeah. We, 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 we train in deference to authority from a very young age.
1: But I think, well, deference to authority is one thing, but it's also important to ask questions. Now, the issue is, if one says, okay, you can ask questions, but they must be within a certain framework. In other words, only questions allow which are going to support the basic thesis. Really? Why would you say that? I mean, what, kind of, what kind of crazy thing is that? People do. You know, okay, yes, you can say things, and, of course, and we make sure we run it via our publicist first because we want to make sure nothing is untoward. I think, really? So, so what's going to happen here? It's, I mean, it's amazing in a way. How oversensitive people become to any perceived criticism. So see, I wrote an article about three years ago about Donald Trump. Before he got elected, incredible as it may seem. Um and he was requested by an American business publication. I can't remember exactly now who or what. Anyway, the long story short. I wrote the thing, the oh, all, I all proved and so forth, and of course, this was getting closer and closer, they have not published it, and I thought, well, really, you've got to get it out soon, because really, otherwise, you lose your moment. Anyway, eventually, word gets back that they can't publish it, because there are certain statements I have made, which may be construed as very contentious, and they were very worried the publishers might be sued. I said, I'm sorry, I might, at your request, in a public vehicle, the publication it was, and you're saying to me, I mean, I didn't say anything which I would say was vulgar. I certainly mocked Trump, as he then was. But quite right too. Quite right too. You know, if you if you know, if you if you are in the public gaze, you should expect a level of scrutiny and whether you like it or not, it's nothing altogether. even politics, sport and everything else. They have different opinions. Never mind with that. But, I remember very, very well, they basically said that, we'll run it, we've got to excise some of this amazing I mean, mean, procedure It probably should be here. I just put it all back in again <laughs> let it go but yeah it, it was um, I mean see he's also very kind of you know uh, i mean I don't know if you've got people watching this in America got american?
0: Yeah, yeah, we do have american viewers yeah
1: have you any Trump supporters. know I mean, that'll be, that'll be um, well quite possibly yeah Do this how you know, stands the drops i mean it's, it, 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 it's it, it, i mean I have to say, one thing which I remember in the last election more than anything else was thinking to myself how is it possible a country with such an abundance of resources and talent as America can produce two candidates of such a low quality in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? I tell you, there's one reason for that. Money. Because America's built on money and commerce and that's really all they care about. You can talk about other things all you like. Innovation and art and, and science. All great. In the end, it's all about the dollar. That's what they really care about, most of all. And sadly, Trump, in many respects, represents the worst of America. Now, luckily for me, I'm not an American. So, although I go to America, it's a fine country other ways, I do have to suffer for the most part the nonsense he spouts. And not that I want to give all the political rant if it's not appropriate, but I would say that, you know, I'm not hopeful that there will be another incumbent this time next year. But well, I do fear for an America that supports somebody of such low quality because that is a man who doesn't really have any empathy, doesn't really care what you or I think he's basically there to support one thing himself. Now, it may well be a long journey, other people do benefit but I can't think I don't follow the American political scene very carefully, but I remember one thing which was deeply shocking to me, which is when he demeaned the parents of a young man who'd won a Purple Heart for rape reduction and killed, I think, in Iraq or Afghanistan. And he publicly belittled them at a rally, essentially to provide luster to his own kind of grandfather. And then subsequently... The way John McCain again. I know John McCain. He was an American war hero, and he was a very high-respected man by all sides of the establishment. To treat him as he did was appalling. I thought myself, really, America cannot do any better. I'm actually quite shocked, but I'm not sorry for the other day.
0: Right, but but it it links. I suppose it 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 links to. I mean, it's an. This, this other point about that we were making about psychological safety, because there's two sides of this, isn't there? There's this ability to dissent, to question authority, your ability to criticize Trump, um, Trump's ability as opposed to criticize others, right? So the, this ability to allow dissent, um, but also having the the fortitude and having the fortitude to to deal with that dissent. And and ideally have a situation where we can all move forward together. There's...
1: Look, on a practical basis, you know, again, I'm not an expert on American politics. I can only see what I observe on screen or when I read in the newspaper and say, so well, um, when you are the president or the leader of any nation, you do, by definition, represent all of the people. And Trump is a man who has divided his nation more than ever before. The irony is that he has achieved a relative degree of comfort at this point because of the fact that, until recently, the stock market has been very, very strong. People have made more money, jobs are increasing, a greater sense of security. The reality of the matter is actually that the economic cycle just favored him. It just happened that he took office at a time when the American economy we're starting to turn and the seven-year cycle is in full swing. It'll turn back again probably by 22. I think, you know, I was going on right now. America's prospered in spite of Trump, not because of him. And Yet most Americans, I think, are very, very insular, they do really have a world view, which is a big problem. America, once upon a time, really was Primus into Paris, you know, it, it, it was a dominant nation. Now, Still a very powerful nation, no question about that, but it's one of many. And America's got to really reposition itself in a new world. I'm not sure it's actually equipped to do that as well as it might. Now, again, okay, my opinion, of course, I don't think nonsense, but, you know, I sense, So, I have just been there, and I know a lot of people in America, all over. It is a country which is not happy. Below the surface, it's like, it's like, it's like a swan gliding... Serenely across the pond, you yeah, but frantically kicking underneath, and that, in my mind, is something which reflects the state of America today.
0: Well, yes, and I think that... well, there's certainly a, I think there's been an increase in inequality there, hasn't there, which which which, is, which we know historically raises tensions. In, in, in inequality in the oh yes, in, yeah, yeah, sure. income inequality, and that we know historically raises tensions in uh, in countries. What's
1: very interesting, actually, is. The, the, America has more people in prison than any nation in the world. Far more than in Russia, even China. The American level of incarceration is, I mean, I read the pew center, which is a very interesting source for all kinds of statistical information. Quite shocking. But of course, in America, you're probably aware, much of the the system is privatized. It's wrong. it's wrong by companies. It's the things I said before about, you know, the, 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 the commercial aspect comes very, very prominent again. And not that I want to go to the other extreme and live in a very, very kind of uh, egalitarian society where everybody shares everything equally. No, it's not going to work either. You need to create an environment where people are rewarded for ambition and for risk and for taking a chance and for someone thinking differently. But I also feel that government somehow... I mean, it's almost as though... It would be a rather interesting idea if one said to every world leader... Okay, right, we're going to ask you to take a means test here. And the means test is to determine whether you've got the right qualities to lead anything, whether it's a country. And the means test will be devised by people from around the world. And we will give you a mark out of 10 or 100, whatever it may be. And we'll see exactly, you know, maybe you will sit and you've got to write this on your own under exam conditions. You've got half an hour, whatever, in a private room. We'll get all things together and see how you do. Now, won't happen, of course, but it would be very interesting to see how people expose themselves once the auto cue is gone. Once the script writer is actually behind the curtain and you are out there
0: on your own. Well, isn't there an argument to say that that exists to a greater degree now than ever because we've got this ability to see people, um, if you like, off camera, right through through people yes, capturing I, them in social yes, unguarded uh, yes, moments, hot mics, camera like, phones. And yes,
1: so. yes, you, could, you can capture people in inappropriate situations, wherever it may be. But the idea that you are invited to almost reflect your own personal manifesto. Ten questions, Richard. Okay, you know, what are the three values you most in, 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 uh in other people, you know, you, know, which, you know, which opponent did you most admire and why? What did you learn from that person? I mean, yeah, anything, ask Trump. Okay, right, okay. Tell me, people, you, or maybe, who are three great writers? You, well, of course, Trump doesn't like work. Well, he never read a book, which of yeah, well, itself is quite shocking. You know, you can have somebody who never read a book. I mean, she never read a book. I mean... Incredible, in a way, to me, in a way that you can't, you can't read anything from your Twitter feed, maybe, or Fox News. But, you know, there we go. But I think to somehow invite people as leaders to share their weaknesses. I mean, what are you going to be scared of? What, actually, maybe find find am not true, you are useless, you are, you know, an ignoramus, you are you know, in education, you are antediluvian in some of your thoughts. Well, maybe you are. Okay. Now, some of these things may matter less than others, and that's fine. But I think what's important is people actually come clean and say, OK, this is what I stand for. I'm open about it. There's no subterfuge here. I'm open. It's like an open exam.
0: Yes, but I think that the, the only... I mean, I think this this really pertains to the cult of the leader, I believe. A little bit. And, yeah. and we, we create the cult of the leader in politics. We create the cult of the leader often in our corporations. And I don't. I think unless we change the system to the the degree that we're no longer so reliant on our cues from a single leader, until we do that then then it will n- never be viable for a leader to expose their weaknesses in that way. Because, I, because the populace that are looking for them to them for leadership won't accept it.
1: Well depends how you define leadership. Yes. I mean is leadership about strength in all respect? I don't think it is.
0: No, I don't. No, I don't think it is. No, but I think we
1: create leaders in that in that image. I usually. I I I think that there's going to be a shift in the way leaders are perceived. What it is to be a leader, you know. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a business analyst. I'm not a psychologist. I I can't speak other than just for myself. But I can see you nevertheless know, if you look at the language and the tone of the language of younger people, people who were disadvantaged, were disenfranchised, who weren't thought to have any voice of any consequence. And I think now you're seeing, it's an issue, I mean obviously the, 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 the Me Too movement I'm slightly ambivalent about. I mean clearly some people behave despicably, but there is a sense somehow that you know people are jumping on the mammogram a little bit after the event. What has been very interesting indeed is this whole thing around this girl, Greta Thunberg, you know, the climate change, which, you know, once in a time, almost like a, a holiday project, which has become a bit more than that, and suddenly not quite so easily dismissed, dismiss. And suddenly, when you find actually you've got five or 10 or 20 million people all behind it, and they've got a voice, and they're more important than that, they have a vote. Now, that's a really big game changer, in my view, Richard. You know, it's all very well. We sit here and talk about, okay, well, hang we can put things down, and maybe people won't agree because of the cost of I agree with that to a degree. But the fact of the matter is that the people who matter most of all Yeah. You and me, Trump, never, not important. Young people, that's the future. And what they think is everything. I think you see that you know people who mistake that are in for a big shock. Maybe not in our lifetime, let's see fifty years, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to me that, you know, you look at the candidates for the U.S. presidency and they're all in their mid to late 70s. I find that extraordinary in a way because what that country needs is energy. It needs fresh ideas, it needs fresh direction. It needs inclusive leadership. And these people who are humble enough saying, you know, guess what? I was wrong. I cocked it up again. You know, what kind of shock am I? Mm. You need that. You need that human factor. The idea that, you know, once upon a time, you know, Kings and leaders were often people who led you into battle and conquered nations and so on and so forth. But the idea of a leader as a warrior is not there anymore. No, Don't jump into battle, worry about his bouffant hairstyle, you know, blowing in the wind. I mean, come on. No. We say, Donald, no, no, you know something? We'll see you on the beauty part at the other end of the parade. Yeah, No, of course not. Again, the, the, the notion of what it means to be a leader needs to change. And I have to believe, as I said before, that empathy, engagement, inclusiveness are really the key ingredients. You can always buy in the expertise from elsewhere.
0: But, and, I, and I think that's right. But I think that that shift can only happen if we also see a, a shift in our, in our cultural systems, if you like. So we, we raise the, the stake... We, sorry, we lower the stakes for the leader. Because if you're pushing authority down, then those in, in the central positions uh, have less less power. So we reduce their power. If you look at somewhere like Switzerland, some ridiculous percentage of the populace of Switzerland can't name their prime minister. Why is that? Because so much of the power is devolved to the cantons, right? Yes, and, and, and a lot of yes, this is made, yes. is made through um, plebiscites. So you don't have so much centralized power. So in that scenario, I can imagine it would be much easier for the Prime Minister of Switzerland (laughs) to divulge their weaknesses and be vulnerable and and show their humanity than it would for, say, the president of of, of, of the United States. And I think that that's a shift that we need to see in public life and in businesses if we want to see this this shift in how much we're we're allowed to be human in our lives.
1: I think in a way it is down to institutions. I think institutions obviously are comprised of leaders and followers. And I think the imbalance needs to be corrected to some extent. I think that more followers need to speak up and more leaders need to listen. Yes. So going back to my point about listening and speaking as the most valuable tools we have, our brain has allowed us that particular gift. Now, I'm sure you're all very aware of the old maxim that we were given two ears and one mouth for a reason, and they should be used in due proportion. In other words, people talk too much, they don't listen enough. And I think you see that if more leaders listened and more followers spoke up, I think that gap would diminish. Now, yeah. again, I, 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 am so not a business analyst, clearly I'm, I'm speaking rather sort of, uh, uh, a sort of freestyle fashion here, where I'm just was sort of sprouting ideas, some which maybe in the cold maybe they thought was complete nonsense. But nevertheless, I think there is a shift, and I can't define it in quite the right terminology or language, but I just sense, I was talking about before, but my, my kids yeah. are all in their 20s now. So, old enough that they know their own mind, but they've come from a world which is very much on the cusp of the change in used to personal technology. It's like borderline. They're all involved in creative industries in one for one another, so they understand enough. Yorkers are all smaller. They're 20 years behind, effectively. Yeah. And eventually, if we have this conversation, hopefully with Kieran in tow, in 20 years' time, in this board, and say, yes, I guess what, it's like, you got that right. That, oh my God, what you say, oh, How crazy was that? Yeah, because of course, you know, one does... Find that all too often, you know, there's a repetition of a cycle through history. Whether economic behavior, whether indeed, you know, uh, more prosaic things, changing fashion, art, and so forth, those things are all variations of what went before. And I wonder to what extent, if you go back 150, 200 years, whether this country or maybe France or somewhere else, was there a different kind of politics where actually what you found the gap? was actually rather narrow than it is today. Where the people who are leaders listen more, and the followers, least speak up more. And whether the nature of the dialogue changes because of social media, may be a good benefit, I, I, it may be seen. But I think it's about people feeling that they have permission to speak up as followers. And the leaders feel they have permission to let go, to drop the reins, to say, you know, I don't care about my shareholders, I don't care about the industry or peer group reviews. And I know fundamentally these people need to be a part of the conversation. I think, for example, every major PLC should have representatives in the boardroom from a shop floor or the equivalent. All of them. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, what kind of crazy thing is that? We say no, 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 we only want people like ourselves. I mean it's extraordinary there are conversations going around about the fact that you haven't got enough ethnicity, for example, or enough women, people of a certain age. Why not? Why not? What are people so scared about? That they're a bit crap, or well, maybe they are a bit crap. And we'll find out how crap they are and how crap their behavior has been to the detriment of the company. I think there's a very deep insecurity at the top of major organizations, both in business and in not-for-profit. And I just feel that not knowing is actually an invitation to a brighter future. Because when you don't know, you ask questions. Unless you are so insecure, you don't even allow people to think you don't know, and therefore you essentially replicate all the mistakes of the recent past. So for me, encouraging dialogue, engagement, empathy, rapport, occasionally argument, but certainly along the way, quite a bit of laughter these are all key ingredients of the offline philosophy. And for better or for worse, I can only say having hosted many days, 50, 60, 70 days over the years, I just know that when you get people together, and you give them permission to be vulnerable and to be themselves. Suddenly, all things are possible, and that's a wonderful thing.
0: Wow. Well, what, what a note to end on. Howard, pleasure thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure having me, and for sharing this wonderful building. Pleasure. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to First Human dot com.